0: Is God out for your own good? I mean, the Christian answer is yes. You know, God, of course God is out for your own good. But what would you say if you had to write down your answer anonymously on a piece of paper? What would you say if you knew no one else would judge you for what you wrote down? I have a feeling that there's a small part in each one of you that maybe doubts that God is out for your good. I mean, think about it. How do you? What's your natural response to kind of disappointment in your life? Uh, maybe you missed out on, on the job that you've always hoped to get or a promotion that you've been working so long for. Maybe you get a horrible mark at tutoring and you're like, why? Maybe you can't find any friends and you always sit by yourself on the bus and you wonder, does God care? See, so See, when things are hard in our lives, I think there's this temptation to kind of Wonder first of all is—is is God really here? But second of all, to wonder is God really out for my good? If He's here, why doesn't He do something about it? See, that question is kind of what this passage is about this morning in Ruth chapter two. Uh, last week, if you weren't here, we looked at Ruth chapter one. Uh, Naomi, uh, who grew up in Bethlehem, her, her family moved into Moab because of a famine that had struck Bethlehem. In Moab, her sons marry Moabite women. But also tragic, tragically, her husband and both her sons die. <laughs> they hear of food that's now in, in Bethlehem, and so uh, Naomi, along with her daughter-in-law Ruth, they, they basically go back, go back to where Ruth, um, sorry, Naomi grew up in Bethlehem, where their food is. Right at the end of chapter one, though, uh, we see kind of the state of of Naomi's mind. Uh, in chapter one, verse twenty, she says, "Don't call me Naomi." call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Is God present? Is He out for our good? These are the questions that are meant to be kind of swirling around as we finish the first chapter of Ruth. And so in Ruth 2 this morning, we start to see God starting to work in Naomi and Ruth's life. Ruth chapter 2 affirms that God is indeed present and He really is good, that He controls all things in our lives for our ultimate good and joy. It doesn't take too long to live in this world, to be confronted with suffering, disappointment, or tragedy in our own lives. And so this passage tells us that in our temptation to be bitter against God because of these things, we need to remember and respond to God's sovereignty and His goodness. When we're tempted to respond with bitterness and resentment towards God for what has happened, we need to remember and respond to God's sovereignty and goodness. And so this morning, it's it's pretty simple. We're going to look at those two aspects about who God says He is. A God who is sovereign, that is, He's everywhere controlling all things, and a God who is abundantly good and generous. So if you're following along in the bulletins, you can see those two points. So why don't we look at this story and think about a God who is sovereign, um, just a bit of context to chapter 2, uh, right at the end of chapter 1, we, we, uh, we hear that Ruth and Naomi, they, they enter Bethlehem at a specific time of the year, at the time where the barley harvest is just beginning. Essentially, the farmers had planted crops, they're, they're now about to kind of harvest all their hard-earned kind of crops. And so Ruth hopes to kind of get some of this food. And so in verse 2, what do we say? Uh, Ruth talks to her mother-in-law and says, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. Uh, behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Uh, because none of us, I think, are farmers, we don't really kind of get what Ruth is kind of talking about at this point in time. So uh, let me explain. Uh, so often, harvesting would be done in a two-stage process. So the first stage, often men, would go through a field and they'd get a, a clump of grain and, with one hand and a sickle with the other and, and cut the grain so they'd have grain in one hand. Uh, they'd get the pile of grain and put them on the floor. Uh, so that would be the, the first wave of, of harvesting. Uh, the second wave of harvesting is um, other workers, and, and in this passage it sounds like women, would come behind these people that have put grain on the floor and they would kind of bundle them up in la- larger bundles to be taken away and, and transported. So there was this kind of two-stage process to the aspect of harvesting. Uh, but there were certain laws that kind of governed how you were allowed to harvest your field, uh, laws that all kind of Israelites generally obeyed. So farmers were told that you can't harvest right to the edge of the fields. So you kind of had to live a bit of a, a buffer or a leeway. And you weren't to kind of pick up if you were a bit lazy or a bit not very coordinated and you dropped grain and you bundling. You couldn't go then pick it back up. If you'd forgotten it, it was kind of tough. Why these random laws? Well, these laws were given by God and they were really to care for those that were poor. Those who are foreigners, those who were really disadvantaged and had no power in society had no way to get an income to get food. And so these these, these people, these poor people, these foreigners, would come in and pick up these, these grain, this grain that was left over. Generally, how it would happen, let me kind of uh, do an example. Say there were two fields. So this this side of the congregation is one field, and that side of the congregation is one field. Uh, the harvesters would move down all this side. They were harvested all. Then they would start harvesting this side. What would happen after they'd finished harvesting that side, the, The people that were picking up grain, those that were poor, those that had no power, they would start moving down. It wasn't only until you finished were you allowed to kind of start going around and picking it up. Because you could see, like, you could, like, oh, I just picked this up, you dropped it, didn't you? Um, And so, like, to kind of create some order, that's how harvesting would work. That's what Ruth is talking about. She's going, can I go and, and sort of pick up this empty grain? Um, Back when I was uh, studying in America and I was a student with my wife, uh, we were, as all students generally are, quite poor. um, And so instead of taking my wife out to really nice restaurants, I would take her on Saturday nights, uh, we would go to Starbucks. I would spend $3.50 and buy her a drink and, you know, that would be how we would roll. So it was was a very economical way of doing a date. Um, But what we realized one Saturday night when we went to Starbucks is that um, there's obviously food that they sell, which they can't sell the next day because it kind of expires. So at about 8 o'clock at night, they start putting all this food on the counter. And they tell us that if we want it, we can take it. And we're like, this is awesome. So we had like, uh, it was, uh, the date which started off with just coffee, ended up with cheese platters. We had some fruit and nuts. We had a, a yogurt cup. And so we would go every Saturday night hoping that they would like put more food out. And we'd like expand our date. I know many of you, what you're thinking, you can kind of smell our desperation, uh, so poor were we, um, but that's, kind of what, that's what, kind of what gleaning is like. These people were desperate. They didn't really have a choice. And so this was the best way in order to get food. And so this, in verse 2, is kind of Ruth's game plan to essentially provide uh, food for her and her mother-in-law. And so in verse 3, we kind of see a, a summary of what happens in the rest of the chapter. Let me read it for us. So she went out, this is uh, Ruth, entered a field and began to glean, that's pick up the the grain. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Limelech. A bit more context here. So fields back in those days, they didn't have fences like they normally do now. And so because there were no obvious boundaries, and because landowners would offer different sort of plots of lands, they wouldn't be connected together, you would, as uh, someone that was gleaning, picking up leftover grain, just kind of walk around randomly, hoping you'd find a field that had lazy harvesters, that had dropped lots of grain. So you try to find, where's the, where's the best field with lazy workers that I can go and get more grain from? And that's kind of what Ruth was trying to do. What we need to realize here is that Ruth's arrival into, into the field of Boaz is no mere coincidence. For the, for the ancient readers, they read this story, and they kind of would have keyed in on the phrase in verse 3, That says, as it turned out. Uh, This is a Hebrew phrase which kind of carries a a weight of of fate or destiny. Uh, The author here is likely trying to communicate that it's not just random coincidence that that Ruth has arrived at this, this field owned by Boaz. The author is trying to tell us that God had sovereignly ordained Ruth to enter this specific field at this specific time. It's a signal to us to recognize that God is very much present in this story very much present in Ruth and Naomi's life. And he's at work, though likely in the background, It's bringing about a reversal to Naomi's bitterness. But why this talk about fate? I mean, who really cares which field she ended up in? Who is Boaz anyway? Well, look there with me, verse 1. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. His name is Boaz. As you read verse 1, two things about Boaz kind of pop up. Uh, The first is that this guy is, um, what is he? He's a man of standing. What does it really mean to be a man of standing? Basically, it's shorthand, this guy's loaded. Uh, This guy has lots of cash. He likely owns multiple uh, sort of plots of land. Um, If you want to like have lunch with someone, you want to go with Boaz because likely he'll buy you lunch. That's what it means that he's a man of standing. Uh, The other thing we find out is he's from the same clan of Elimelech. Elimelech was the husband of Naomi who passed away. And so the author and what the reader is supposed to recognize here is is it possible that God will use this man of, of great wealth, this man from the same clan of her late husband, to turn around the situation in which Ruth and Naomi find themselves in? See, so we need to recognize that this isn't an artificial coincidence. You know that that, that moment where you accidentally bump into someone? Like a guy is trying to chase a girl, and he, so he finds out where she'll be. Maybe she's at the art gallery. He stalks her on Facebook or talks to her friends. And so he goes to the art gallery knowing nothing about painting, not really caring about painting, and, and tries to walk around looking really intellectual and smart. And then he happens to bump into this girl that he likes and goes, fancy seeing you here. You like art? I like art. Oh, let's talk more. Can I get your number? Artificial coincidence. See, Ruth's entering Boaz's field is not some elaborate setup that that, that Naomi thinks, oh, this guy, he's loaded, he's kind of related to us, he might help us out. Let's go work in his field and happen to bump into him. What we see here, this as it happened, is an explicit statement of God ordaining events within the lives of these women in order to do something. I wonder whether there are moments in your lives where God has obviously been at work Perhaps some of you have been searching to connect with God. You just happened to walk past a church, decided to step in, and and you've met Jesus. Your life has never been the same. Maybe you've always been longing for some satisfying career. You just happened on a whim. Maybe you're on a dare to apply for a job. A job has has been just so satisfying and and rewarding. Maybe you've just had a horrible day at school or at work and you just happen to chat to a friend and they speak words of life into your situation and, and life doesn't seem so bad anymore see friends as you look back at ordinary moments in your life can you see moments where God has obviously been he's obviously intervened in incidents where he's kind of changed things done small things that have had large consequences So I think this reminds us that God is far more present in our lives than we actually give Him credit for. And as we start to grow in being able to recognize God's fingerprints on our everyday lives, as we seek to grow in acknowledging that even in the most mundane of circumstances, God is present, our hearts start to become filled with hope. We start to believe, yes, God is alive, that He is present. And even though life is hard, He has promised that we'll be faithful on the last day, and He's using all things so that I might grow and love Him more. But in a a group as large as this, it's it's undoubted that as you look at those circumstances in your life, instead of seeing immeasurable good, what you see is pain and suffering. You see the opposite. In these moments, it's so tempting to really feel bitter towards God, slightly resentful. It seems he's orchestrating moments, yes, but not for our good, for our despair, our pain and agony. In these moments, it's important to recognize that God is not only in control of all things, that he does everything for our good because he is good. He does everything for our good because he is good. God is not evil or capricious, he's not vindictive. Just because we fail or do something wrong, He's not out to get us. No, God is abundantly good. And that's the next aspect about God that we want to see in this passage. It's our second point. A God who's abundant in His goodness. Look with me back at the story. In verse 4, um, the landowner, Boaz, he enters the field. He says, hi. People say, hi back. And then he starts to speak to the, to the team leader of, of these harvesters. He, he seems to notice Ruth kind of standing there and so, in verse 5, he says, who does this young woman belong to? Basically, where, where, where'd this person come from? She's not part of the team. And so, the team leader talks about what has happened. Uh, this woman, Ruth, has entered the field, sought permission to kind of pick up the leftover grain. And in verse 7, this is her request. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. This is an abnormal request. We've got to understand what a what a weird request this is. See, the normal request is, can I gather in the field that you finished harvesting? So remember I said, like, we would have, they would have done this side and then the, the gleaners would have come to this side? What she's actually asking is, uh, you're gleaning here, you're, you're harvesting here, can I go there as well? Can I work where you're working? Can I glean where no one else has gleaned before? Can I get priority position? I was thinking about how best to explain what she's actually asking for. This is kind of like, if you're familiar with Boxing Day sales, these super sales that go on on Boxing Day and people like line up from like 4 a.m. outside the store waiting to be the first one in there. This is like you walking up to the head of the queue, knocking on the door and saying, hey, can I, can I come in? I know there are billions of people outside, but do you mind if I just pop in maybe for an hour before anyone else? I just walk around casually just getting the best deals around. What do you think? You think that's Okay. See, this is what Ruth is essentially asking for, this, this privilege in this position. Her, her request is, is bold and forward, and it's so kind of outlandish that, that the overseer, the team leader, he can't really grant access to it. No, no one really asks that kind of thing. And so, likely, he said, you know, well, Ruth, you know, wait, wait a second. Just, just hang out here, um, wait for the landowner to come along. So that's why she's standing around. And so that's why also as Boaz enters this ground, he's like, oh, there's, there's this random woman just standing there, waiting for an answer. Ruth is, is patiently enduring the scorching Middle East sun, hoping, what? For favor. Isn't that what she asked for in verse 2? Uh, verse favor in the eyes of the landowner, wanting to grant unprecedented access to the leftover grain. So Boaz here responds to Ruth's Ruth's request with amazing generosity. And I think if you want to kind of summarize what what Boaz does, we see three big things that he's generous in, three things. The first is that Boaz gives her far more than what she actually asks for. Look there in verse 8 and 9. So this is Boaz talking. Uh, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. We see amazing generosity. She's allowed this this position to kind of work on this side, where everyone else is working, kind of ahead of everyone else. She's got access to the first grain that touches the ground and they forget about. But as we read the chapter, we see an even greater generosity. So in verse 15, this is kind of Boaz talking again. He says, you, you know, you can gather among the sheaves or among the grain that has been placed down and, be, and it's going to be bundled up. But then what happens in verse 16? He gives order for the men to take stalks from the bundled grain and leave them on the ground for her to pick them up. See, we thought Ruth's bold request is pretty out, out there. Boaz acts with an amazing uh, generosity that kind of far surpasses what Ruth even asks for. So that's the first thing he does more than she even asks the second thing that we notice Boaz doing is he protects or he provides protection. A bit of context, uh, gleaners, as I said, were, they didn't have much standing in society. Uh, they were desperate to find food. And so often they would kind of overstep their mark. Uh, they would kind of try to glean where they weren't allowed, try to pick over leftover grain, which they, they weren't able to have access to yet. And so it wasn't uncommon uh, that farmers would kind of use some physical violence to kind of keep people in check. Don't go there. No, get away back over to the other side but we also remember multiple times in this passage actually that Ruth where is she from she's from Moab Uh, she's a foreigner she she doesn't belong in this society she's open to racial abuse and discrimination and so not only has Ruth made this bold request uh, she's an outsider she's she's opening herself to potential danger and abuse from these workers yet what happens in verse 9 look with me Boaz provides a protection I've told the men not to lay a hand on you verse 15 and 16 I I told them don't reprimand her don't rebuke her see Boaz goes and creates this safe environment for this outsider to gain and collect grain he provides protection above and beyond what he was even kind of required to do by law amazing generosity the third and last thing that Boaz does is he provides food and water You can think about it, uh, it's not too hard to imagine a hot day. Um, I love the cool change, but yesterday it was was pretty hot, Wednesday it was really hot. Imagine working in such sun outside, picking up grain all day long, you would have been uh, parched. But there was no real requirement by law uh, to feed or or give water to these these gleaners. They would have to find their own sustenance. What happens in verse 9 though, Boaz provides water. You can drink from these water jars. Then in verse 14, he tells her, come, eat, eat with us. It's kind of like the staff meal. Only people that, that are part of the, the crew get to do this. But yeah, come along, come anyway. See, far above any legal requirement, Boaz generously provides sustenance for the hard work of, of gleaning. And So abundant is his generosity that she has food to kind of take home. He's not just kind of giving her what, what's going to satisfy you, what's going to take away that hunger i'm going to give you just enough nice take all this so much so that she's so full she has to take it home see boaz extends amazing hospitality to this foreigner extreme generosity it's kind of like going uh to your boss and saying hey i've been working quite a long time here what about a raise thousand dollars what do you think yeah and he says you know what yeah I i guess i can give you a raise but, you know, I'll chuck in a few other things. I'll make you employee of the month. I'll send you on an all expenses paid trip to the Maldives. And I'll give you a raise, but $1,000, <laughs> I'm going to give you $10,000. That's kind of what's happening here. If you don't work yet, well, maybe maybe you'll understand this. Uh, I don't know why they're all about dating, but anyway. Um, pretend you like this girl and, um, and you want to go, you ask her to go out for coffee with you. And she says, you know what, Jono? I won't, I won't have coffee with you. I'm going to have dinner with you. More than that, I'm going to take you to a two-hatted restaurant and pay for you. And at the end of the night, she gives you a kiss. It's like, this is awesome. See, Ruth's request was, was crazy. It was outrageously bold. Yeah, Boaz's response well, was so much ex- more extravagant in comparison. It's a surpassed it's a Ruth's wildest hopes and dreams. Ruth was probably wondering, dude, I should have asked for more. should have just, you know, raised the level. But why? Why does Boaz care so much for this stranger, this foreigner? Verse 10 is the answer. Well, that, that's the question. That's, that's what Ruth's going through. Ruth's going, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Look at Boaz and how he responds. Verse 11, I've been told all about you, what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you have left your mother and father in your homeland and come to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Somehow, uh, whether it's the overseer or maybe kind of there's been a bit of gossip that has happened in the town, he's heard about this this Moabite, this foreigner, how she's displayed this amazing love and commitment to her mother-in-law, even though she didn't have to, how she's kind of essentially walked away from all that was comfortable to kind of follow Naomi and her God. She's given up everything always is hoping that God would would bless her because of that, that God would somehow repay Ruth's amazing love and kindness. And it's likely that he thought, what I'm doing, well, that's a small preview, A, a down payment of what God, he hoped, would do in her life. But I think what we have to also recognize is this, See, Boaz gives Ruth far more than food. He's not just filling her stomach. Through his actions, Boaz transforms her status and elevates this woman's dignity. I said, as a a gleaner, he occupied the lowest status in society. You're the lowest of the low. No one cares about you. You're a nobody. You're an outsider. You don't have any power. You don't have any privilege. But through Boaz's generosity... Ruth no longer holds and occupies that, that status, doesn't it? Remember what she says? She, Even though I'm not a, a part of your household, you treat me like this? She's treated in such a way that she feels more like an insider than an outsider. She's given priority. She's given protection. She's given the dignity of being one of Boaz's household. See, as we read this, this chapter of Ruth, we're supposed to see God working in, in the lives of, of Ruth and I think ultimately Naomi, starting to turn around their lives instead of being desperate for food and hunger and nearly dying. At the end of the chapter, there's this, this, this inkling of abundance, too much food now, this opportunity for, for the next weeks and months to be, to be in a position where she could work and glean abundantly. Instead of being the outsider, instead of being the one that no one cared about, she she, she started to have this position of, of being included, being accepted, being elevated in the status and dignity. And the truth that we kind of see operating here is this for those that give up everything to take their refuge in God, they experience the abundance of goodness that only God can provide. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. For those who give up everything to take refuge in God, they experience the abundance and goodness that only God can provide. As we kind of reflect on this passage, I want also to reflect on our own lives. Maybe moments of of disappointment or suffering in our own lives. And as we think about these moments, what, what are the kind of requests that you might bring before God? What might you ask for? What might be the remedy for those things? What might be, in in Ruth's terms, your bold requests? Maybe you'd ask for for health if you're struggling. Happiness, relationships, money, a comfortable life. The the list goes on. What would you go before God and say, God, if I had this, life life would be good. The interesting thing is, as we look at the Bible, God responds to people that come before him and asks these things. But he, he kind of gives the same answer, the same solution. The answer God gives is Jesus. We kind of scratch our heads. God, when, when I'm talking about happiness, I'm talking about a boatload of friends. They come over to my house, they play games, we eat food, there's lots of fun. When I'm talking about health, I'm talking about the ability to, to be resilient to sickness and, and infection. When I'm talking about a relationship, I'm talking about just someone to hold hands with and, and stumble up during movies. How's Jesus the answer to all these things? Well, well who is Jesus? Let's take a step back. See, see Ruth was, was an outsider and a foreigner before God and God's people. And, and in many ways, that's the, what the Bible says about us we're outsiders of God's kingdom. Because of our sinful state, this this wanting to disobey God in every aspect of our lives, we aren't in relationship with God. We don't have the opportunity to enjoy blessing from God. But see, Jesus changes everything. His death and resurrection wipes clean our slates of sin. But it also means our status becomes changed. We become citizens of God's kingdom, family members of God's household. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2 verse 18 because of what Jesus has done. He says this, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. See, Jesus changes everything. We're on a runway road to the suffering of eternity in hell. Yet, because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross, all things are misdirected back towards heaven. We're welcomed into God's kingdom, we're able to enjoy relationship with him and the promises of God. I hope you've been able to see how Jesus in your own lives is so much better than you could ever imagine. See, we couldn't get health, but we also recognize that in many ways our health is, is temporary. Sickness and infection will claim us in death. But God gives us Jesus who brings life for all eternity as he conquers sin and death on the cross. God could give us a boatload of friends that we can play big two with till the early hours of the morning, but so often we we recognize as we hang out with friends that, that happiness is so often temporary, so often fleeting. God then gives us Jesus, who brings us a steadfast joy that permeates into every aspect of our lives, so that even in the darkest moments, there can be hope I mean he could give us a relationship with someone to kind of watch scary movies with and, and hold hands with. But so often we know in those relationships we're exposed to the fickle feeling feelings of someone else as we as we fail to, to do things the way they want. But God gives us Jesus, who brings us into a relationship with, with the Father, that we may experience God's steadfast love, his unconditional acceptance and approval, where we may Uh, enjoy the grace and forgiveness even though we fail it's possible as we follow Jesus that we may gain health happiness and relationships but even if God doesn't grant us those things God's goodness is so abundant in Jesus I hope you will feel like you wouldn't have missed out a thing Jesus becomes the tangible expression of God's abundance goodness to us In Jesus, we have something that is far longer-lasting, more pervasive, far more more robust and far-reaching than anything we could have ever thought or imagined of. I hope, as we say all these things, that they aren't new, that you know how good God is. But so often as as our relationships with God go through weeks, months, even years, Our faith starts to become abstract and intellectual. We know, but it doesn't connect to our lives. Well, how do we connect what we know about God to our everyday lives? Well, two things I want us to leave us with. Two things to be able to connect who God is with our everyday lives. Uh, They are remember and respond. First, we need to remember who God is. We need to remember His goodness. Uh, read the Bible. There are a number, numerous ways of how God is good. Let's pick one. A God who protects us. This is what we see. Boaz provides protection for Ruth, and, and we know in Scripture God provides protection for his people. What does that protection look like, though? You just need to read the Psalms, that overflow of beautiful images of this God. Psalm 46. God is an ever-present refuge in times of struggle. Psalm 28. God is a strong tower and a shield about us. Psalm 23, God is the good shepherd, leading his people through the valley of death. Psalm 91, which we read before, he is the one in whom we find refuge under his wings. So I think often our, our problem is not that we don't know that God is a protector, but that's all we know. As we read scripture and these, these images of, of who God is and how he protects his people kind of bubble to, bubble to life. They give us this multicolored vision of, of who God is and how He intervenes in the lives of His people. How good are you at remembering? But I think remembering is only half the process. See, we need to realize that because we have a relationship with God, we don't just remember what He's like, we respond to who He says He is. Responding is acting as if God's promises are real acting in faith to trust that God really will protect us and potentially moving into dangerous situations, knowing that God is there and good. Recently, I've been, um, I've been walking with someone who's, who's been wrestling uh, with um, their relationship with uh, their dad. Um, it's been really hard for them. Their dad has always been critical of them, always finding something they can do better. And it's probably not too hard to put ourselves in their shoes. Maybe for some of us, our parents are just like that. Or maybe it's our bosses or our friends, someone that always just finds something wrong with us. And so as I've been talking to, um, to this person, uh, they, just, they just told me, like, because their dad just treats them like this all the time, they've essentially just started distancing themselves from them. Uh, they just avoid talking to them, avoid being in the same room, because they know if they're in the same room, They'll end up in a shouting match, an argument. We've been talking about what it means to see God as as part of their everyday lives and especially as part of this situation. We've been talking about what does it mean to see God as, as the one who protects and gives refuge to his people. And we've wondered, well, whether it's because God is present, this person's able to actually enter into conversation with their dad, weathering the storm of criticism. In many ways, we have to see that this is an amazing act of faith as this person starts to engage in conversation, recognizing that amidst amidst the barrage of criticism that they face, God is present and protects, that he's good. See, they start to realize that, that God being a shield and a fortress isn't some abstract or intellectual kind of representation of who God is. But as they've remembered who they are in Christ, they've recognized that God approves of them even though... The dad may not. They recognize that God accepts them even though their dad doesn't. This confidence, I think, has led them to have a new ear to the criticism. They've been able to recognize that while so much of what their dad has said has blown out so far out of proportion, there often are kernels of truth in which it's spoken. Because of that, they've been able to grow, been able to really experience the freedom that comes from knowing the goodness of God. It has been an absolute privilege and a blessing to see God so alive and at work in my friend's life. To remember, but also to respond to a God who is good. See, the beautiful thing about Ruth too, about this story of abundance and goodness that Ruth experiences, is a story that we too experience because of Jesus. As we take refuge in God, we too can experience the overflowing goodness of God. I pray our hope will be found in Jesus, and as we step out in faith, that we may experience all that God gives us. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you this morning, in many ways with heavy hearts, uh, because we know that we're people that, that do doubt. Uh, we doubt that you're really out for our good. I pray that uh, you would give us eyes of faith to, that to see that in Jesus You have given us uh, far more than we could ever have dared imagine to request. Jesus is just that good. But I know, oh God, sometimes it doesn't feel like that. Sometimes it feels like anything but. And so I pray that you would help us to be people of faith, that not just remember but respond to you. And as we do that, as we take steps of faith, that you would be present that we will experience the goodness of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.